without further ado, um, here is Joanne. Thanks, Bob. Uh, nice to see all your faces. Uh, a couple of familiar faces, but mostly brand new. Taking a moment to take you all in. Um, Bob, can you tell me how long I'm supposed to be uh, speaking? Oh, roughly uh, 20 minutes or so, but uh, let's see what, yeah, that, that probably roughly around there, give or take, and then save a little time for sharing if you'd like. Does that work for what you had prepared? We'll find out. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I looked at uh, Kenley's offering from last week uh -huh. and uh, I felt uh, moved to begin in a similar way. Uh, he was acknowledging uh, the various inheritances that he has received as a human being and uh, mine are a little bit different, but uh, not very. Mm. I want to acknowledge my blood family, uh, a long line of uh, Jewish nomads who uh, came to this country around the turn of the 1900s, uh, escaping uh, death and destruction and uh, having a sense of not belonging and a strong sense of social justice and a sense of belonging to a tribe. And that was a lifeline. And uh, to also to uh, recognize our teacher who gifted the West with uh, a really fresh approach to Eastern philosophy uh, I think if I had not uh, crossed paths with Thai, uh, I would not have gravitated to Buddhism because I don't think I would have gotten it and it didn't really get it or perhaps uh, still don't get it. Um, but there were a couple of things very accessible for me. One were the precepts, the five mindfulness trainings, which I thought, wow, uh, here's a community of people who are all looking at a way to be good in this world and to center social justice. And so that really drew me in, as well as the emphasis on community, to belong to another tribe, because the tribe that I was born into was very hard for me to relate to some of the teachings. So gratitude to that long line of unbroken teachers all the way from Thai back to the Buddha. And this land that I live on, the Pomo land, I live out in the country and uh, have uh, 
good fortune and the legacy of being on someone else's land, uh, although they perhaps didn't think of it as their land, and uh, have learned how to forage uh, my hunter-gatherer self very fresh. And uh, so gratitude for all the learnings that were passed down through those lineages and the uh, understanding that I also need to tend and befriend the land and uh, to strive towards an understanding of the interbeing nature that uh, the Native peoples uh, had deep in their own spirituality. So I came through the door of the five mindfulness trainings and community in terms of practice. And I accepted and tolerated the fact that I would need to sit quietly for periods of time uh, meditating, which I uh, found very difficult and not particularly nourishing or enjoyable. Even though Tai was saying, oh, if you're not enjoying your sitting, then you're not doing it right. Well, I obviously wasn't doing it right, and I didn't do it right for a very long time. And so that's what I want to talk about, because I think that there are certain backstories that were really helpful for me to let go of my shame and my uh, discomfort with meditation, with formal sitting on the cushion meditation. And uh, when I began to study a little bit of neuroscience, I started realizing that I had inherited a nervous system that was pretty well shot by the time I was born. Mm. And that learning about that nervous system really helped me both to re-regulate it and to understand why I was having such a hard time. So uh, I'm going to say uh, the most simplified reductionistic uh, rendition of what a nervous system looks like in a human being and to realize that 10,000 years of evolution is like a blip so that we're really living with a nervous system that's uh, evolved for hunter-gatherers and uh, we're made for facing stresses and emergencies that we can see and that happen very quickly and that are over fairly quickly. And our nervous system, when it's under stress for long periods of time, especially for, with things that we can't actually see or uh, fight or run away from, then the nervous system, as it is in a default mode, doesn't work very well. But uh, fortunately, the nervous system has uh, ways of being tailored so that we can function 
better in our world and that our path is to see the things as they really are and that as we learn to balance the nervous system we are more and more able to see things with right view or creeping up on right view so i want to uh, just do a little demo and probably many of you have seen this kind of thing before so um let's see okay here we go so there i am um and this is my brain it looks um familiar here's whoops this is a, a mirror image i always get confused this this is my prefrontal cortex. Here's my nose, and here's my brain. I have to look at my hand and not my image in the screen. So this is my thinking brain, and it is able to see the big picture of things. It's able to uh, navigate language and relationships and problem solving, and it has a story. It has a aware of time and place and learning, creativity. Then there's uh, deep inside that brain, there's the limbic system. And the limbic system is kind of the gatekeeper. It is always scanning the horizon for danger and it's connected to the memory these things inside um, which puts a little spin on everything you've ever done every sensation you've ever had of whether it's associated with danger or uh, not and so when it's associated with danger, it alerts the body to prepare to confront that danger, either by fighting or running away or in some situations by playing dead. So we have this vast amount of history, memories that have a, a spin on them and when it says danger this thing starts to go fast the heart goes fast the lungs go fast there's a lot of energy in the arms and the legs to fight or flee and that happens automatically when this thing perceives that whatever it is is safe then this thinking brain comes back online and it's able to really be curious about the environment, to see things much more as they really are. Things are going slower. The mind remembers the story, where it happened, and is able to make choices based on reasoning. So one thing we know 
is that when the body goes fast, when the heart goes fast, when the, the lungs go fast, it automatically sends a message up here that maybe there's something wrong. And when we sit down on the cushion and we start to notice what's going on in our bodies, sometimes that gives a signal that things aren't safe. Um, we're asked to close our eyes. We're asked to sit with a bunch of strangers. We're asked not to move. And some of those things for some people at some times create a sense of danger. And we're told to just sit on the cushion and embrace that feeling like uh, a parent would embrace a baby. But as you keep noticing perhaps your breath and you're not supposed to move, then those sensations become more and more. They're not becoming calmed. They're being alerted because you're, you're focusing your attention on them. And this thing starts sending signals. Watch out, you're in danger. And so the ability to see things as they are when we're on the cushion and we're really stimulated out of this mindful zone really diminishes where we're being triggered in a way that is not helpful. Uh, I'm guessing you have seen this, this picture before. Uh, Ty beautifully used to uh, draw a circle and uh, it represents our consciousness. The bottom part represents our store consciousness with all the possible mental formations in it. Some of these are uh, uh, collective seeds and some of them are individual. And then up at the top, there's our mind consciousness, things that we're aware of. Some of these seeds in the store consciousness are beneficial or wholesome and they produce joy and happiness, gratitude, love, nurturing. And each time we have one of these sensations, one of these neural pathways, one of these seeds manifesting in our mind up here, they get stronger each time it comes into our consciousness. And each time we put our attention on it, that's like a nourishment. Attention is a nourishment. And so those seeds increase. But each time we touch and have manifest an unwholesome seed, then we begin to suffer. And what our practice tells us is that if we can look at that with curiosity, which is like embracing it. We can see what it's made of. We can see what the sensations are in our body. We can notice whether those are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Whether 
that goes along with some story. If we can see what it's made of, then that's like embracing it and the mystification of it is broken to some extent. And that seed goes back down into our consciousness with a little less potency. But if we perceive that situation as dangerous and our bodies start to get tense, then we're not able any longer to see it as it really is because this part is readying for action to defend us, to help us survive. And this part is no longer online. This is the part that's watching, that's being curious, but we're not able to be curious when this part is gatekeeping and is making our bodies more tense. So what I wanted to suggest are some basic practices when you notice that you're hijacked by your emotions or by body sensations when you're on the cushion. And to know that that is normal, that when you have uh, an experience that has that negative spin on it, you no longer have choice about what's happening in the body. But if you can recognize, ah, I know this sensation is kind of hijacking me, what can I do? I want to uh, lead us in a short kind of uh, diamond lane experience of what are some things to do if you feel like uh, the unwholesome seeds are carrying you away in a way that you can't be mindful, that you can't see it as it is, how can you get back into that mindful zone? So the first suggestion is that as you sit down on the cushion, that you take a good look around, that you know what you're seeing, uh, that you, you know where you are in the room, and that you allow yourself to spend some time really feeling grounded, either on the chair or on the cushion. Notice how your legs touch the floor and how your legs are supported by the floor, or how your bottom is supporting how the sway in your back feels. And spend a bit of time really feeling the solidity of the body. That's first. And eyes can be open or shut. Really important that you have that choice. So if you need to look around at times, look around, that's fine. That's really helpful and grounding if you're being hijacked. The next thing is to make yourself aware 
of pleasant sensations in the body. Scan the body for pleasant or neutral sensations. Places that you can come back to should you feel like the tension from sitting is uh, not going down, it's going up. So ah, I can shift back to that nice feeling of my feet and my socks in this moment, or the feeling of the air on my face. So finding some pleasant sensations or neutral ones, the body is, the mind is always scanning for unpleasantness. That's the nature of the nervous system and the survival of human species is to constantly be scanning. So bringing our attention back to the pleasant, really helpful. Another thing that we can do is to begin to collect um, a number of images of things that bring us a sense of well-being. It could be a person, uh, a path, an environment, whatever it is, uh, a kitten, that when you think about it, you notice that your body begins to change. And you say, oh, these are little gimmicks. Uh, this is not really meditation. But if you look at the foundational sutras of our lineage, you're going to find these very things in there. The Anapanasati Sutra, the Full Awareness of Breathing Sutra, has 16 exercises. How do they begin? They begin with grounding yourself, with noticing your body, and then with finding ways to calm the body and ways to gladden the body, to notice those pleasant things. And the same with the mind. That that sutra is basically a course in somatic experiencing, one of the embodied practices of psychotherapy today that's dealing with trauma. And uh, if we didn't relate to being traumatized uh, before uh, two months ago, I think uh, pretty much everyone is feeling uh, somewhat highly stressed or secondarily stressed for the benefit of others around them. And so we may be finding that our ability to sit on the cushion is not increasing but decreasing right now. That uh, our ability to concentrate is going down, our irritability is going up, and that having some basic practices that help us get back into that mindful arena will re be really vital. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be able to look at difficult emotions 
and be with them as they are. But if we want to be curious and see what they're made of and learn to tolerate certain amounts of discomfort, we must be in that mindful arena and not be in that limbic or emotional brain. And we know that by being in touch with our bodies. So while we're off the cushion, we can also prepare ourselves to be on the cushion. We can be doing a body scan in the morning, just noticing the parts of our body, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, tight, hot, activated, so that we become familiar with those areas and even practice spending part of our attention on those pleasant sensations, even before we get out of bed. We can also be collecting delightful moments, savoring them, sustaining our attention on a cloud, a kitten, a child, and remembering it when we go to bed, rehearsing it when we go to bed, and using those things when we sit down on the cushion, if we notice that our ability to be present isn't crisp. So we have the Anapanasati Sutra that details out how to do that. We have the Satipatthana Sutra, the four establishments of mindfulness that give even more details and what we can do on the cushion and off the cushion to heighten that ability to be present. We have uh, the blooming of the lotus is full of wonderful meditations that help calm the body. Um, and then, uh, let's see. One last uh, thing I'd like to uh, mention is that Dharma sharing is also an arena where we can uh, notice when we're watering those uh, wholesome seeds and when we're not. When we're watering the wholesome seeds in sharing a difficulty, we're saying, what are the things that we have done to practice that have been helpful or asking for help in a situation. But one thing we're not doing is we're not relaying the details of something that's difficult to the extent that we begin to feel it again. That when we're caught in the story, when we tell many details of a difficulty, this part begins to come back online. And we actually are watering the seeds of the unwholesome seeds that become stronger. And we're doing ourselves a disservice as we're trying in Dharma sharing to 
water the seeds of hope and joy and confidence. The other thing that happens when we get too caught in the story and it becomes more real than telling about is that other people also may have this part of them stimulated. And so they may go out of their mindful presence. So Dharma sharing is a very delicate time to really open our hearts and say what's in there, but to speak in such a way that we nourish ourselves. And that doesn't mean that we have to be Pollyanna. And it doesn't mean that we can't say difficulties. But we can also notice what are some of the small silver linings of whatever we're doing, whatever we're experiencing, so that we are gathering the nourishment of being witnessed and also the nourishment of being supported by asking, well, I'd like to hear uh, what other people have done uh, with this kind of, of uh, difficulty. Um, but not to get carried away uh, so that you feel uh, drained or worried or um, reactivated when, when we're doing sharing. Uh, let's see. Wanted to mention uh, there's a book uh, called uh, Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness um, by David Trelevin, and it uh, I think it's a, a wonderful compilation of understanding of what happens when we're doing sitting meditation and how to uh, help ourselves and our fellow Sangha members uh, have a, a wholesome and enriching experience um, following our practice. Well, I think that's it. Thank you very much.